Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series, the number one podcast for brain injury and concussion resources. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be chatting with lawyer Spencer Bishens about Social Security Disability. This episode is brought to you by Integrated Brain Centers. Located in Denver, Colorado, Drs. Shane Stedman and Perry Maynard are experts in functional neurology and treat complex concussion cases from around the country. With over 20 years of combined experience, they are leaders in helping patients who are suffering from post-concussion symptoms, including dizziness, vertigo, headaches, dysautonomia, and more. For your free consultation, you can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Hello, I am Amy Zalmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. For those of you who maybe don't know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I am a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and I have published four books on the topic of concussion and brain injury, all of which are available on Amazon. And additionally, I'm editor-in-chief of the Brain Health Magazine, and you can get a free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zelmer. And I invite you to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other caregivers, survivors, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Spencer Bishens. And Spencer has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. After law school, he worked in the private sector for two years prior to joining the Social Security Administration, or the SSA. He worked at the Appeals Council for almost four years, reviewing thousands of disability decisions for compliance with SSA's complex rules and procedures. He then worked at the hearing level for seven years, where he drafted almost 2,000 decisions for the SSA administrative law judges. After working for SSA for more than 10 years, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. So welcome to the podcast, Spencer. Are you there? Uh, I am here. Can you hear me all right? I can. Welcome. Welcome. I think this is such a wonderful topic. Um, It's something that comes up so often in my Facebook group. Um, You know, people repeatedly try to get their their social security disability benefits and they're constantly denied and, um, you know, I think taking some of the mystery out of it uh, might help people get a better feel for what they need to do. So, so thrilled to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, you know, I guess maybe the first thing we should just talk about is 
um, you know, the application process. So if you have a disability, you know, in my, in my case, most of the listeners here will have a brain injury. Um, what is the first, you know, step for applying for SSDI? Well, the first step happens even before you fill out the application, because the thing is, once you fill out the application, of course, Social Security is going to want to see medical records to support whatever you allege your impairments Mm -hmm. are, right? So I like to tell people this process starts way before you ever get to applying for benefits. It starts years before when you're deciding what doctors to see or psychologists or physical therapists, whatever sources make sense for your particular impairment, what you're saying to those sources, what tests those sources are running, what's being put in your medical report. It really all starts there because by the time you get to actually applying for social security, you're kind of stuck with whatever medical records Mm -hmm. you have for the previous 12 to 24 months. So you really have to make sure that you're going to have good evidence by the time you get to that application. Otherwise, as you know, from the messages you receive in your Facebook group, it can be really, really difficult to convince social security that you are disabled. And, and, you know, and I think this brings up, I mean, we could go off on this tangent forever, but it brings up a great point about, you know, what are your doctors putting in your records? And, you know, for me personally, I know I just kept being told, oh, there's nothing we can do for you. You just have to give a concussion more time. And, you know, obviously that was incredibly poor advice. Um, But, you know, I hear that a lot. Right? Like, it's not unusual. That's, that's kind of a common um, complaint is that doctors really brush off, ex- especially those of us that can, you know, we can walk and we can talk and we look fine, right? But inside, there's a whole lot going on. Um, you know, so and, I, and obviously. I, 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 do, I do hear this all the time because as you're, as what you're pointing out is that there's a significant difference between visible impairments and non-visible impairments. Mm-hmm. And that's why in, in the book, I separate, when I'm talking about evidence, I separate visible and non-visible impairments. Because if someone's got a back impairment or a knee impairment or a shoulder impairment, there's really good testing and really good objective evidence, such as an MRI, that can show Social Security exactly how substantial the impairment is, exactly what part of the knee or back is impacted, and that gives Social Security a pretty good idea of whether you can work or not. But when you're talking about neurological impairments, not just concussion, um, but other things like seizure disorder, these impairments are much more difficult to diagnose and treat. Uh, Other things as well, cancer, um, it's hard to know how cancer is impacting the body and impacting the ability to work but also other things like connective tissue disorders and mental health impairments. So concussion might come along with PTSD or anxiety or depression or a neurocognitive disorder. Mental health impairments have a similar problem as far as how do you identify how substantial the impairment is and what what that person's work-related limitations are as a result of the impairment. 
it can be really, really difficult for trained medical professionals to do this. So when you're asking government bureaucrats who may or may not be lawyers, <laughs> but who are definitely not doctors who work for Social Security, when you're asking right. them to analyze these impairments and decide what you can and cannot do with, you know, if you have a concussion. I mean, we recently saw uh, the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins sustain yes. a major concussion. And, and even like the best neurologists in the country couldn't decide exactly when it was okay for him to go back to work. So how <laughs> is a government bureaucrat who doesn't have that training, how are you supposed to decide if that person can go back to a less physically demanding job, like being a cashier or a delivery driver? It's really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. So, I guess kind of going back to where I was going with my question, how, so when you're the survivor, you, your brain isn't working, right? Like we've just had a brain injury and whether we realize it or not, we're not remembering things or whatever. So it's really important in my opinion to bring someone with you to your doctor appointments, right? I wish that is my biggest regret. I wish I had brought somebody with me who could advocate for me. But what do you need to be doing to get your doctors? You know, you just gave this great example of an NFL player, which don't get me wrong. I think there's more politics behind the scene involved in that. But like you said, like we hear conflicting information. Does he have a concussion or not? You know, um, which he clearly does. Um, but what do we need to do to get our doctors to listen and to get the right information in our charts? So I just want to say I do recommend that anyone with any impairment have a friend or family member um, help them on their disability, their social yeah. security disability journey. And I also in the book recommend someone hire a professional representative but that's not a substitute because, because if you hire a lawyer to help you at your disability hearing, that person is helping you at your hearing. They're not going to your doctor's appointments with you. They're not right. looking at your medical records with you, asking questions. So I also recommend you have someone close to you, a friend or family member, and that's whether it's a brain injury, a mental health impairment, or even a back injury. Everyone can benefit from an extra pair of eyes and an extra brain involved in the situation. But the mm -hmm. thing is, doctors are trained on how to be doctors. They're not trained on the legal aspects of really anything, malpractice, car accidents, uh, and Social Security disability claims is no different. Doctors understand how to write a medical opinion that is medically based, but they don't understand how to write a medical opinion for a legal proceeding. And it is a different situation because Social Security has a very specific definition of disability. And it's different from what a state agency might have or a private disability policy. It's definitely different from workers' comp definitions and from the VA's definition of disability. So the reason I wrote my book, Social Security Disability Revealed, is that I wanted people to understand specifically how Social Security works how the programs operate, how Social Security makes decisions, what kind of medical evidence you need, 
and how the Social Security judges and staff attorneys review that evidence. And so it's very likely that your doctor has not read the book and that your doctor's not going <laughs> to know how mm-hmm. to help you. And so it's really incumbent upon you as the patient or your support system to know here's what we will need to give our Social Security representative to submit to the judge. You know, you've got the doctor, and then on the other side, you've got your, your Social Security representative and the judge, but you're in between. And you need to be an active participant in your case. And as you said, if that's not you, the claimant, the survivor, then someone else needs to help you do that. But you're the one in between the legal proceeding and the medical proceeding. And so you need to know, okay, when I go in to see the medical sources, what evidence am I going to need for that future medical proceeding? And you need to be able to tell the doctor, here's what I'm going to need to prove later on. How do we do that now? And sometimes that can't be done in one day. Sometimes that takes time. Social Security's definition of disability is the inability to do any full-time work in the national economy for a full 12 months. So it may be the case that your doctor hears that definition and says, well, I need to see you for a full 12 months. And, and, you know, if I see you every month, 12 times for 12 months, that's the only way I'm ever going to be able to sign my name under an opinion saying you can't work for a full 12 months. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I could see where a doctor might say that. So that's why it's really important for the patient and their support team to understand the definition of disability and to understand what they will need to prove so they can give that legal information to the doctor to help the doctor come up with a constructive treatment plan, but also so that the patient knows they'll get really good medical records because it's the records, those medical records that will become the evidence for their disability case later on. And, you know, I think what happens so often is many of us have a brain injury um, you know, and we're told that we should be fine in, you know, six to eight weeks or a couple months. And so disability is the furthest thing from our mind, right? And as time progresses and now it's six to eight months and we're still not seeing improvement and it's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm not able to work, right? So, like, we're months into this for many of us. Um, before we even begin to think about the future of our work and, and you know, applying for Social Security. Um, you know, so what, what type of advice do you have for those people in that situation that are listening? Well, I, I am going to answer that question, but what you just said brought us something that, that is really, really important, so it, it, I do need to cover it. You talked about the future of work. But what's equally as important is your path, the work you did in the past. And the reason I say that is Mm -hmm. when someone thinks about whether they can go back to work, they often think about the work they were educated for or trained to do or have Mm -hmm. done in the past. So let's say you have a teacher, lots of teachers in the United States. Let's say you have someone who has a bachelor's degree, they have a master's degree in education, they're a middle school or high school public school teacher, and they sustain some kind of brain injury and neurocognitive disorder. When that person thinks about going, quote, back to work, that person is likely thinking about when can I go back to work as a teacher? 
And if six, eight months later, that person's not back to work as a teacher, that person might think of themselves as being disabled and they think about filing for right. Social Security. But that is not how Social Security operates. And that's why this is so important to talk about. Social Security's definition of disability asks whether you can do any full-time work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy. That includes work that does not involve a lot of physical exertion, so sedentary sit-down type work. It also involves a lot of work that is unskilled, that does not require a lot of contact with others. A lot of jobs have involved just simple, routine, repetitive tasks, Here's an example. Think about like packing boxes. Your job is to take cans of soup or some kind of other food and pack them into boxes and put them on a table to be loaded onto a truck. And that's all you do all day long, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. Well, for our teacher, that person might think, this is boring. I don't want to do it. It's going to be minimum wage. It's not what I was trained to do. But Social Security doesn't care about what you were trained to do, what you used to do, what you would like to do. Social Security says, can you do any full-time work in the national economy? So if you can repair eyeglasses, operate a photocopy machine, or sit down and do work with your hands, even if it's simple, rudimentary work that doesn't involve a lot of brain power, you will likely be found not disabled. And one of the frustrations that I probably the biggest frustration that social security claimants have when they get denied is this lack of understanding of how social security defines disability. Because that teacher after 12 months of not teaching thinks I can't be a teacher anymore. I'll go apply for social security. Social security says send us your medical records. The teacher does that. And then that teacher gets denied and they don't understand why. And, and yeah. this is the, the most likely disconnect there between what they thought they were applying for and what Social Security's actual answer was. So knowing that definition is really important because if that person knows that definition before they apply, they can then go talk to their medical sources, okay, I have to prove I can't do any full-time work in the national economy. I have to provide evidence showing I cannot do a full eight-hour day, 40 hours a week on an ongoing basis. I can't interact with others. I can't be supervised. I can't maintain concentration throughout a full eight-hour day. There are certain things I have to show or I'm not going to be found disabled. But a lack of understanding of that definition means there probably won't be the right evidence in the record. So circling back to the question you asked, what can you do? My, the, the main theme of my book is get educated on the process that Social Security uses because that is the only way you're going to know what they, what Social Security will be requiring you to prove in order to get those benefits. Otherwise, you're going to be lost and confused and your case is very likely going to be denied. And, okay, so going back to working, like, for instance, a teacher. Um, a teacher might not be an example here. Though. So, um, so you have a career, and you're making, let's just say, 100000 a year. 
And so now you can't do that job, but you can maybe package cans of soup, making dollars an hour. So clearly, we now have a difference in income, right? So like, where does that play into it as well? Um, Social Security doesn't care about how much money you used to make. And uh, or, the federal minimum wage is what it is. I believe it's still $7.25 per hour. Yeah. And so. what the gut feder- it's a federal program, so that's higher in certain states. But federally, Social Security's question for anyone, regardless of how much you were earning in the past, I, I, when I worked for Social Security, I saw cases of doctors who were making $250,000 a year. The same question for everyone because the same law applies across the country to every claimant. Can you do any work full-time in the national economy? The assumption is, of course, you'll be getting paid at least minimum wage because that's a legal requirement. So if you can do any work at minimum wage on a full-time basis, you are not disabled. Interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think there is a very big disconnect. I don't think the average person, because I know I didn't fully understand it that way either. Um, I never went through the process, but, um, you know, I've I've watched hundreds of people in my group go through this. And, you know, a, a common piece of advice that people give in the group is you're always going to be denied the first time. So just keep applying. Um, and I always tell well, people, can, can, get a lawyer. Can I address that? Well, yeah. Can I address both of those things? Because I do talk about both of these things in the book. Uh, here's the stat. Social Security over the last decade denies around a little over 70% of claims at the initial level. So about three out of 10 are approved at the initial level. And I know someone with a brain injury who was approved at the initial level. So it can happen, but it is rare. Um, and the reason it's rare, I mean, there's several reasons, and I talk about them all in the book, but the, I think the main reason is that, as we've been talking about, when people first apply for Social Security, if they haven't read my book, if they don't understand the definition of disability, it's fill out an application, send Social Security and medical records, and hope. And that's the plan for most people to start. As we've talked about, it's a very strict definition. And so most people don't actually meet that definition of disability, and they may not understand why, but they don't meet the definition. And that's one of the reasons that most people are denied up front. Some are approved, but most are denied. As far as the representative is concerned, I do talk in the book about who the Social Security representatives are, how they get paid, how you hire one, if you need to change representatives, how you would do that. And I do recommend everyone to have a professional, knowledgeable Social Security disability representative because they know the rules, they know the procedures, they'll know your local judges, they'll know the hearing office staff, they know deadlines. They know a lot about how the system works that you as the claimant don't know. However, it's not a substitute for your own education on the process. And this was one of the biggest problems I saw when I worked for Social Security. I wrote almost 2,000 disability decisions for the judges. 
Uh, many people don't know that, but the judges, they don't write their own decisions. They have staff attorneys that do that, and that was my job. And so I wrote almost 2,000 decisions. I saw a lot of cases where the person had no representative, but I also saw a lot of the cases where the person had a representative, and I could tell the strategy was, I give everything to my representative, and I show up at the hearing. And I could tell that, I, I, I knew that's what was happening, because I could hear that people were highly unprepared for their hearing, unprepared for the judge's questions, questions that I knew the judge was going to be asking as I was listening to the hearing. After, after the hearing, I, I would listen to them and I would know, okay, I know this is going to be the judge's next question, but I could tell the lawyer had not prepared that client. And the thing is, these representatives, they don't get paid very much. What they get paid is capped at $7,200 per claim. Now, that's really not a lot for a law firm that has a lot of overhead, secretaries, paralegals, other staff. So getting $7,000 for a substantial amount of work on a case, it's not a lot of money. And so what that means is it's a volume business. So yes, everyone should hire a representative, but you have to understand that person's role in the process. It's not to just do everything for you. First of all, they can't go to your doctor for you. They can't talk to your doctor about what tests you need. They can't go into the MRI machine with you. They can't go to the visit the brain surgeon with you. So there's certain things, really, they're stuck, as I said at the beginning of our discussion, that lawyer is really stuck with whatever medical record you have developed for them and given to them. And if it's got gaps in it, if it's incomplete, if it doesn't have the right evidence, then they're representing you, but they don't have a lot to work with. So it's important that you understand their role, but that their role is limited. And you as the patient or your support network, if you can't do this on your own, has a pretty substantial role as well. And you have to know what your role is as the patient so that you can work with your representative, not give everything to your lawyer and say, I got, I got a guy handling it for me. You fulfill your role, your representative fulfills their role, and then you work together to achieve the best possible outcome. I just want to say one more thing on this point. A lot of lawyers, I know this from my experience working for the agency, a lot of lawyers, they'll, maybe they'll meet with you for an hour before your hearing and then an hour at your hearing, and that is it. For a lot of Social Security representatives, they just do not have time to spend with you because they have so many clients because that's the only way they can operate that type of business. So if you go in for your one-hour discussion and you haven't read the book and you don't understand the terminology and your lawyer is spending the entire time explaining very simple things to you like, Here's how Social Security makes decisions. This is what the five-step sequential evaluation is. Here's how brain injury disorders are evaluated. This is what an RFC means. That 60 minutes is going to go by really fast, and you're really not going to get very far into your strategy discussion. Whereas if you know this information ahead of time, as soon as you sit down, you can immediately say to the lawyer, all right, I've looked at listing 1202. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think the odds are of getting two marked. And if not, what's my RFC? And for your listeners who don't know what that means, that's fine. I understand that. 
but those are the kind of terminology that are in the book. And when you learn about these sort of things, you learn about the social security listing for neurocognitive disorder, you learn what a residual functional capacity assessment is, you can have a much more thorough strategy planning session with your attorney. And I know from my experience, those are the cases that have a much better presentation at the hearing. The testimony is much more convincing. And those are the kinds of cases that are, can convince even a low-paying judge to approve a claim. Well, Spencer, this has been really great conversation. We could talk about this forever. Um, I do have in the show notes, I have a link to your book on Amazon, and we also have a link to your website, which is visionspublishing.com. And so if someone wants to get in touch with you and learn more about you, um, is the best way to visit your website. Yes, visionspublishing.com, B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. All the places to buy the book in paperback and paperback and ebook format. If you want to ask your library to get the book, we also have that information on the website. You can give that to your library. There's a full description of the book, the table of contents, and links to all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's all on the website, visionspublishing.com. Great. Well, Spencer, thank you so very much for being here today and sharing this information. Like I said, we have all the links in the show notes. So wherever you are listening, you can click through um, those links. So thank you so much for being here, Spencer. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Just another big thank you to our sponsor, Integrated Brain Centers. Check them out online. And again, you can find previous podcast episodes on most streaming platforms, such as iTunes, or you can find them directly at basesoftbi.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zelmer. And please join us in Amy's TBI Tribe on Facebook. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it for $5 a month with a Patreon membership, patreon.com slash Amy Zelmer. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you in the next episode.